Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. What's up everybody? This is Corbin Maxey. As always, wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for listening to the show. Okay, I am not going to lie. I am so excited about this episode. And, you know, I <laughs> I love podcasts, of course. I love doing this. I love all my episodes. But this interview was so much fun because for me, and I'm sure this resonates with a lot of you listening, I've always been fascinated with the unknown, the unexplained. And honestly, as a kid growing up, I was so fascinated with Bigfoot. I grew up in, uh, in uh, Roby Creek, Idaho. So, it's a really, really small community, about 45 minutes outside of Boise, but just imagine in the middle of the woods. Like, I grew up in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, and I remember for fun, I would just hike the mountains, just hike on trails, hike, i build forts by myself, but I always was wondering, oh my gosh, is there anybody out there? And so I've always been fascinated with Bigfoot, and a lot of you are as well, and so I was so excited for the show to bring on one of the world's leading authorities on Sasquatch, okay? His name is Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Now, he's a scientist. He's a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. So, for all my skeptics out there who are thinking, oh, Corbin, great, you brought on some wacko to talk about Sasquatch. That is not the case. This is a very, very credible guy. Matter of fact, he even risked his career his career was on the line because of him standing up, making a stance, looking at the evidence and saying, hey, there is something out there that is unexplained. And anyway, it is so interesting. So for all of you who believe in Bigfoot, this is great. For all of you who don't, this is great as well because... You know, a lot of you might be on the fence, but this guy, he backs up his claims with evidence. You're going to hear in the interview, he really, I mean, was fully, fully, 100% sure that this is a real animal when he came across a um, some fresh tracks in Washington when he was 38 years old. And from then on, he has just been set. And uh, it, like I said, it was so much fun talking to this guy. And please listen with an open mind. Remember that he is very skeptical, too. Very, very skeptical, and you should be as a scientist. So, you're going to really enjoy this interview. I do want to point out, there are a few things that he does reference, and if you're not familiar with Bigfoot, I just want to tell you, just, you know, kind of beforehand to get you on the same page. He does mention in the beginning of the video, you'll hear him talk about Patterson and the Gimlin film. And that, for those of you who do not, do not know, is the 1967 film of Bigfoot. And you probably have seen this if you haven't, go on YouTube, just, you know, type in Bigfoot film or Patterson Gimlin Bigfoot film, and you'll be able to find it. I'll also put it in the show notes, but that is what he is referring to. And in his opinion, that 1967 film is the, that is a full, full proof of a female Bigfoot that they have nicknamed Patty. So just to kind of fill you in there. But before I go to the interview, which I know you guys are going to enjoy, if you haven't, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes also, please leave us a ratings, a five-star rating. Come on, you guys, you can do it um, on iTunes or Spotify or where else are we? SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever you listen to the show, please leave a rating because it really helps me out and uh, we love all the feedback. So definitely do that. Also, make sure if you haven't already, you should, you should follow me on my social channels on Instagram at Corbin Maxey, C-O-R-B-I-N-M-A-X-E-Y, or uh, on Facebook or Twitter. So you can find more information about that. With that said, everybody, I hope you enjoy my interview 
with the legend himself, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. How's it going? It's good. 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 Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'll tell you what, I was like, I mean, it was kind of a shot in the dark, and I was like, man, I wonder if this guy would do it. But then I saw you're a fellow Idahoan, and I thought, I think I have this in the bag. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that that uh, that uh, sealed the deal. For yeah, sure. right there. <laughs> so let me introduce you. So Dr. Jeff Meldrum, how would you like me to call you? Jeff is fine. Jeff is fine? Okay. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, uh, I have so many questions to ask you. And I've been leading up to this on my social channels. I've been asking people if they had questions for you, and it has blown up. <laughs> oh, I'll imagine. Yeah, I can, I can well imagine, yeah. Yeah. So where, where do we begin? I mean, did you ever see yourself being an expert in this field? Well, oh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I, I, you have to go back, I guess. The, the turning point for me was clear back when I was uh, – a young guy of about, uh, oh, it was fifth grade, so about 11 years old, I guess, 10 or 11. And Roger Patterson came through Spokane, Washington, where I was living. And that was the premiere showing of his documentary showcasing the 60-second clip. And uh, so I uh, saw the advertisement. The kids at school were talking about it. And I ran home that night, that afternoon, and, and um, uh convinced my dad that we had to go see this. And so he and I and my brother, my younger brother, all three went, got there early so we could sit around the front. Uh, we were on the, about the third row, I think. And uh, made a huge impression. I mean, I I started reading. I read uh, Patterson's book. I It turned out our librarian, which was an interesting story in itself, was uh, John Green's niece. So she had his recently published book, On the Track of the Sasquatch, which I, I uh, referred to heavily the following year when I did my class report on Bigfoot. <laughs> We're doing a unit on primates. And she had a, a clippings folder with all these newspaper and magazine clippings that she'd accumulated through the years. And uh, so it was, it was a great introduction. And then, of course, I found uh, Ivan Sanderson's book, uh, which had come out in 1961. And... Um, Oh, I just devoured that voraciously. That's how I learned geography, was learning all these mountain ranges and the different continents and all the different relic hominoids that uh, existed around the world. And um, so that interest waxed and waned over the years. But eventually, uh, you know, due to whatever influence that had, I'm sure there, there was overt or subliminal influence on the directions, uh, or it just brought into focus, I guess, my my interests, but but I ended up uh, pursuing a career in uh, anatomy with an emphasis in physical anthropology. It was physical anthropology that, that drew me primarily, but uh, at that time, anatomists were, uh, or uh, excuse me, anthropologists, the market was pretty saturated in academia, mm -hmm. and uh, programs were popping up with anatomy programs with an emphasis in physical anthropology, and these anthropologists were teaching human gross anatomy in the health professions programs and medical schools and, and allied health, uh, occupational and physical therapy. And that's what I do now. Um, but my interest, my research focus as a, as a comparative anatomist and physical anthropologist has been locomotion, the, the adaptations of animals for movement, especially humans and human adaptations to bipedalism. So it's been the lower extremity that really has, has uh, caught my attention and adaptations of the foot to uh, to the uh, behaviors of walking on on two feet uh, mm -hmm. exclusively. 
So I was in a perfect position where after this this lull, this period of just kind of occasional sporadic and passing interest, I was brought up face to face with a long line of very fresh tracks in southeastern Washington. And uh, uh, the hook was set. I mean, here were tracks that were unmistakable. There was no how how old were you, Jeff, when you came across your first set of tracks? Well, let's see, 1996. So I have to do some fast math here. That's <laughs> 38. 38. Eight. Yeah, that right? Yeah, 38. And were you? So I was. Uh, yeah, I was well into my career. I I did not have tenure. That's another story in itself. But it was a. Uh, it uh, nearly cost me my position. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and the stories. You know, similar experiences by other academics, Dr. Grover Krantz, you know, was passed over for promotion repeatedly because of his preoccupation with this. I had similar experiences as well. And, and, uh, uh, but so, you know, placing it in the context of my career, I kind of dove into the deep end head first without, with a bit of naivete and idealism about science. And about the community of science, there's a, and there's a difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's the practice of science, the ideals of science, the scientific methodology, and then there is the community of scientists and all the politics and paradigms and preconceptions that that go with uh, you know the foibles of imperfect people. And so it was a real eye opener. I mean, it's been a real educational process about human nature as well as Sasquatch along the road. So yeah, I've just. Uh, I just can't. Okay, so you were out actively looking for Sasquatch, and really, really quick. I am an amateur. Do you? Does your like? Do, do you cringe when people say Bigfoot? Is that not the right term? Do you prefer Sasquatch? Oh no, it's fine. It's fine. I just tend to. I, I've tended to uh, go with Sasquatch because, you know, over the years, Bigfoot has become such a tabloid-ridden and stigmatized name and label. Um, Sasquatch, at least shows deference to the Native American traditions that go far beyond, uh, you know, uh, European-American experiences with uh, with this creature and uh, this species. And uh, even that has been sensationalized to the point. The word, I, the word I like to use now, because it is a broader question, and it places it, I think, in the, in the context of of uh, anthropology and, and paleontology, and that's relic hominoids. We have these populations, these species of, of hominoids, be they, uh, you know, cousins of the ape family or members of the hominin family, early offshoots, or even some recent ones. I mean, the, uh, the case for the Russian almas mm-hmm. uh, suggests strongly the possibility of relic persistent uh, enclaves of Neanderthals, or maybe Denisovans, something of that Neanderthaloid um, grade of evolution. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, Sasquatch is either, you know, one model is Gigantopithecus extant, um, having expanded its range from East Asia into North America at some point in the past, or another possibility is uh, um, given the uh, the remarkable adaptations for bipedalism that exhibits, you know, and I should point out evolution is very, um, uh, what's the word, ingenious and conservative in solving similar problems with with similar um, solutions, and because of the constraints of physics and so forth and, and biology, 
And so convergence is a very is a very common one, um, a, a common principle in evolution. So just because Bigfoot seems to walk on two legs doesn't mean that it has to share that adaptation uh, with us in a way that suggests a recent common ancestor. Um, a, a descendant of Gigantopithecus could have evolved bipedalism in a convergent fashion under similar biomechanical conditions, um, uh, even perhaps more so constrained by a large body-sized ape with mm -hmm. the shoulder, wrist, and elbows that don't, uh, that don't uh, tolerate compressive forces in quadrupedalism nearly as well. Anyway, I don't mean to wax too technical on the aspects there, but Paranthropus, for example, is another possible early hominin that, that would be a good model uh, if it became gigantic, along with other Pleistocene mammals, Capana, mm -hmm. and expanded its range through into Asia and up through the Bering uh, uh, Straits land bridge into uh, into North America, as did so many other mammals during that period. For some people who aren't, you know, scientists, maybe, oh, right. or, yeah, who are, are kind of wondering, so, wait, Giganta who? Like, <laughs> so, well, can you explain we know, a little more? we know that gi this giant ape, Gigantopithecus, that, that uh, if it stood upright and had limb proportions that were anything similar to our own, mm -hmm. it would have been probably eight to 10 feet tall and weighed in excess of a thousand pounds, potentially, uh, somewhere in that range, you know, 600 to a thousand pounds. And there's arguments, I mean, and I quibble on that only because people argue about correlations between body mass and tooth size. When you get up into the extremes of those relationships, it becomes a little, uh, a little uh, less tight of a, a correlation. Um, but the point being, um, we have a fossil record of that species that, that extends up to about 300,000 years ago. Wow. So anytime, I mean, that, that species existed for a million and a half years in East Asia. So there were periods of time. I mean, most attention has been devoted to the Bering Land Bridge um, to times that would correlate with possible human incursion. And as you point out, that's, you know, way up in that last couple of, of uh, tens of thousands of years. Um, but that, that uh, the ocean levels have, have risen and fallen numerous times, even clear back into the Pliocene and, and even earlier perhaps. And, and there are, there's ample uh, evidence. I mean, they've done cores of the uh, continental shelf in that Bering Sea that indicate periods, you know, I mean, what, then they find pollen of, of, um, of forests hmm. in soils. And so there were times when, when that was exposed and there was contiguous coniferous and sometimes even mixed coniferous broadleaf forests extending all the way from southern China into, you know, the temperate latitudes of southern China into, into uh, North America. And it's during those times that its range might have expanded and brought it into North America. You know, as I said, as so many other mammals, people sometimes don't realize 75% of the mammals that are native to North America actually have their origins in Asia. Mm -hmm. and come, I mean, it's just there's been a constant back and forth of mm -hmm. species between the two. But I like to point out, for example, the, the cute little ring-tailed um, um, panda, the red panda. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, little, looks like a little raccoon kind of. Um, fossil teeth of that species have been found in Washington state and even in the southeastern United States like Alabama. Now if a little if a little animal like that 
a forest animal like that made its way into North America, then, you know, the it, there's no reason that a, that a, a temperately adapted bipedal um, uh, giant hominoid couldn't have made its way over here as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a book published not too long ago, a very skeptical book, and I had to laugh when I came to this paragraph where he asked the readers then to uh, that to imagine if if he said if we're to accept the suggestion that Gigantopithecus got over here as as the advocates would 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 have you, then you have to imagine this band this this you know reproductive band uh, of shuffling uh, giant primates braving this frozen Arctic wasteland to make their way into North America, a continent already occupied by hungry hunters, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the the scenario, the the way it's set up is just so ridiculous. That's not it at all. I mean, instead, picture this boreal forest that extends all the way way through, and and the animals are just naturally expanding their range. I mean, there's no migration, per se. They don't have some goal where they see a new habitat across the the eastern horizon. It's just that there's there's opportunities for them all along the way as they expand their range generation after generation. Hmm. Very natural. So let's go back. So in the late 90s, you stumble yeah. up, you stumble across, and I'm assuming you were out searching for Sasquatch, correct? No, well, not exactly. No, it, it, was, a, it was kind of a, a, a lark. It was actually in Boise visiting family and uh, uh, was telling them about just a recent uh, sort of uh, – bump in with Sasquatch or Bigfoot that I had had, I was, I'd been asked to evaluate a, a piece of video footage. Uh-huh. But anyway, I, I turned to my brother and I, and I said, you know, Pullman is just a few hours drive from here. I've always wanted to go visit Grover's lab, but never have done it. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's take a trip. You and I, and while the wives go off with the credit cards, we'll, <laughs> we'll take a little road trip. And so, and so we did. And Grover was very gracious, invited us into his lab, and and um, uh, he showed us the casts and everything. And it was just amazing. He even sent me home with a couple of replicas. And on our way back, then we we made a detour because of weather to stay on the the freeway instead of the secondary roads. We went down through Walla Walla. The Idaho only has you know maybe one freeway across the southern half, as you know. <laughs> And uh, up there through McCall, it was given the time of year. It was uh, in February. The roads were a bit dicey. Anyway, we, we made a surprise visit to uh, um, one of these figures uh, in, uh, uh, involved in and featured in a book that I had been asked to write a review of. Paul Freeman, Wes Summerlin, Bill Lowry. These were fellows that were investigating Bigfoot over a decade period or more in the Walla Walla area of southeastern Washington. Mm-hmm. And it was because of that I was visiting Paul Freeman, who had uh, a bit of a Midas touch in some people's mind, finding footprints or, or documenting footprints over the previous decade. Um, it was just he became a bit of a lightning rod and so uh, had access to a lot of reports. And, and the tracking conditions in southeastern Washington are amazing because— uh, there's such a high content of this glacial lus that we find through western and uh, southeastern Washington and on through Idaho, especially that dust that blows all across the Snake River Plain. <laughs> it's that glacial, <laughs> that glacial silt, you know, from the ice ages, and and it makes great tracking beds if the roads, you know, as many are there in the 
in the Blue Mountains in southeastern Washington are just gravel or uh, dirt roads without gravel improvement. I'm looking at his casts and, and just saying, you know, pointing these different features out, amazed. There's something about seeing the original cast in your hand and be able to heft it and look at it and, and, and really appreciate the anatomical details. And I was asking all kinds of questions. He, he says to me suddenly, well, you obviously know a lot about footprints. Would you like to see some fresh tracks? Oh, Yeah, exactly. That was my reaction. My jaw went slack. And my eyes got big. I went, well, what do you mean? Well, I found some just this morning before you arrived. Our visit was completely unannounced. It was just totally, uh-huh. we just decided to go, uh, you know, west <laughs> instead of east on the, on the highway and take that alternate route and stopped and caught him at home just as he was driving into his driveway. Well, he'd been up running the dirt roads on that weekend looking for tracks as the snow melted back up into okay. the populations. You know, so as soon as the snow, the roads were exposed and, and they were, were drivable, he'd start driving them and look for tracks. And uh, uh, I, so I turned to my brother and I said, well, yeah, what have we got to lose? So anyway, so the rest is kind of history. It, it was this long line of, of tracks, 35, 45, absolutely clear tracks in the mud. And like I said, there was no mistaking. There was no, there was no misinterpretation. They were either hoaxed or they were the real deal. And the anatomical details were so compelling. And so there was no, there was nothing in the back of your mind thinking, man, do you think Paul's messing with me right now? I mean, cause oh, if he's yeah. like, if oh, he's yeah. like, Hey, there's some tracks you want to come see him. Like, Oh yeah. No, we were thinking that the whole time. Really? The whole time, even as we're driving up there, I'm thinking that, thinking this, even as we were, I was sitting here looking at the tracks, I'm thinking to myself, how did he do this? Because it wasn't, you know, if you've ever seen a line of tracks uh, left by artificial stompers, uh-huh. you know, it's like, it's like, it's, you know, it's like having a little rubber stamp on the paper and you just, dunk, 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 mm-hmm. you have this line of identical tracks. These showed so much variation in the way they interacted with the soil, the tension cracks and pressure ridges, slide ins, toe drag outs, toes flexed, toes extended, toes really? flexed. Oh yeah, pressure ridges. That what really grabbed me was there were some that had this very distinctive mid-tarsal pressure ridge, which at the time, you know, I hadn't thought about, but I but I was familiar with similar features or similar anatomy rather of the foot in uh, documented in chimpanzees, what was called the mid-tarsal break by Hicks back, you know, decades ago when he was observing the way chimpanzees walked and and their lack of a, of a stable arch, but yet the retention of a great deal of mobility in the midfoot, which was an adaptation for grass climbing up vertical or inclined supports. It allows you to hold on while the heel still can pivot as uh-huh. a lever. So we've abandoned that in favor of, of reducing the mobility of those joints so that they screw into a locked position and provide a stable platform mm-hmm. so the whole foot acts as a lever and we get much more efficiency from the plantar flexors at the ankle the achilles mm-hmm. the uh, 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 the gastroc and soleus the triceps surae muscles and uh, through the achilles tendon and uh, so i mean all these features you know i'm kind of pinching myself thinking is this the real deal oh you know this God. could this really be the real deal and at one instant as i've said before you know even talking about it now i can still have that same sensation where the hair 
stands up on my neck because, my gosh, there actually was a Sasquatch that walked by here last night. Oh, I'm getting chills thinking about it. I would fr- – I mean, but how long did it take you? I mean, I'm, okay, so first you show up, you see the tracks, you're a little skeptical. I mean, how long does it take you to be like, holy crap, man, this it is this is real? 15 minutes. Okay. To look at them, you know, okay. and I was taking pictures. I was so taken aback. I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I so, was so taken aback. I had a video camera yeah. in case behind the bench seat of my brother's pickup truck that we were driving in, mm-hmm. and I totally forgot about it. I took, you know, I took dozens of pictures, but I didn't get the video camera, <laughs> video document this whole scene. You know, I, I did do some measuring and some and so forth. We had scale. I had a I had a, a paint stir stick that we we went after we dropped Paul off back home. Um, you know, he he was downplaying the whole thing the whole time. Well, was, oh, these really? Aren't, these aren't very good. Well, yeah, he said these aren't very good. He collected so many tracks that he didn't bother with them unless he thought they were, you know, perfect. And <laughs> In my in, in my estimation, what he was describing as imperfections were all the telltale signs of authentic, animate footprints, you know, of a real being. And so I was just amazed at it. And uh, we we took him home. It was on a Sunday afternoon, so we had to drive all over into in Walla Walla to find a hardware store. I turned to my brother and I said, you know, even if these are hoaxed, what an opportunity to document. The anatomy of a hoax. Yeah. You know, real. We can't walk away from this. So we went and found a hardware store open, got a couple of buckets and some plaster and oh some stirs. Oh, my God. Went back up there and really started then, uh, really started looking at the uh, at the evidence and, and sort of laying out what had happened. And as it turned out, Paul had read the thing absolutely 180 degrees backwards, and uh, which made a couple of, um, well, I mean, basically what, what it looked like, we, we pulled in with the truck and the track started. It, they appeared to make kind of a hairpin loop and then came back and stopped where the truck was. I thought, well, that's awfully suspicious. Yeah. You know, you're just in the back of your truck, don your fake feet, you jump into the mud, you run out, make a loop, and you dive in the back, kick off the muddy boots, climb into your cab, and off you go. So I said, uh, you know, anyway, I, I don't know if you want to belabor this one point so long, but, but we, we really dissected it. I mean, we kind of forensically reconstructed what had to have happened for this to have made sense if it was real. If it was real, there has, has to be sign beyond these this point where the truck is parked. Of course. And indeed, we found it. Oh, yeah, we found tracks far beyond where Paul Freeman's tracks Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it had come not as he had said, but it had come from the opposite direction, probably from the direction of this big drainage ditch and came across the field was on that little access road i think it was heading right back up if you went if you went the direction it it seemed to want to go you would be right up over into the watershed which is restricted access and then on the other side of the watershed is the wanahatikan and wilderness just hundreds of square miles of wilderness area and i think what happened is it got spooked this just as paul realized this was the first time you're able to drive up on these secondary roads mm-hmm. i'm sure on a weekend there were there were probably people driving up into the uh, foothills to have a bonfire whatever we're coming back in the wee hours of the morning this thing probably saw the headlights because right where the car had been parked was the point where the flexion point was where it turned oh and started heading back and then it was interesting because every second footprint you know it was angled out 45 degrees. And I thought, what's going on here? Well, it wasn't until later that summer, 
I took, we took the family out to Oregon to visit friends. We're on the beach, got the kids building sandcastles. And then I thought, I'm going to go off and do some research. I said, excuse myself. And I started watching the way people were walking and the footprints they were leaving. After a couple of dirty looks, I figured that's probably (laughs) the best (laughs) research method. Yeah, yeah. So I started watching my own footprints and I was walking, I was walking along and about every uh, second print or step or third step i turned and would look back to see how my footprints looked i was try walking to go every time i looked over my shoulder my right foot angled out 45 degrees so that's what this creature was doing it did a 180 turnabout probably because the headlights are bouncing down the road and then it it took off walking and looking over its shoulder every few steps and then it took off running it probably the car probably came around the bend because then suddenly there's a big slide of the toes as they dig in and the stride doubles and you can just see where it ran for cover in the ditch where there you know that was the only place i mean we're, we're down in the foothills not in the forest but just outside the forest on the where they farm right up to the edge of the national forest boundary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i think this creature was down gleaning uh, old fruit off of the plum orchards. There's these abandoned plum orchards down there. And um, in any case, whatever the case may be, it, it struck off across the plowed field towards the towards the drainage ditch, which had brush, which had mm-hmm. vegetation along it. I mean, it, 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 you, you could read exactly what was going on, the behavior. Well, we quickly made some footprint casts, made it a selection of about seven. I kick myself now because, you know, I still... There was still that little bit of tension of, of skepticism and enthusiasm and excitement because had I really been 100% convinced, uh, my brother obviously had to be back to work. Um, I didn't have any absolute commitments. I could have just stayed. I would have, should have had him drop me off to the nearest car rental. And <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's right. I mean, this, these were so fresh. I mean, these were so fresh that when I first knelt beside one, I could see skin ridge detail no. in that muddy, silty, you know, that silt is so fine that when it's wet, you know, I just like I, I experimented with this in my backyard and you and where I actually raked out a flat area in the garden in, in the spring and and uh, actually when we got home and uh, stepped out some prints. And, you know, the first print in that moist clay uh, lus. You could see every ridge detail from on the sole of the foot and transferred to the footprint. In this, because there was kind of drizzly, rainy conditions, a lot of it had already been obliterated. And they, under those conditions, just gravity pulls those little details out very quickly. But there still were aspects where you could see the skin ridge detail as clear as could be. So they were extremely fresh. They had to, based on my experience, they had to have been less than six hours old. So... I, okay, I, I have so many questions. I'm like, yeah. I, I'm getting chills listening to this story. Okay, so first of all, I'm a naturally excited person. So if I found if I found tracks and I called my wife and said, "You're never gonna believe this," she would think that my brother and I went off drinking or something. So yeah, yeah. So like, how do you? I mean, who is the first person you call? I mean, you're with your brother, obviously. Who's the first person you call yeah. and say, "You're never gonna believe this"? Is it your wife? Well, we didn't call back back in those days. Oh, hello, Corbin. I guess you didn't have cell phones. <laughs> yeah, dude, cell phone Sorry. wasn't a thing. I didn't get a cell phone until years later. But okay, yeah. So, but, but that drive back to Boise, my brother and I, you know, we 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 just sat and, you know, all the casts had been carefully wrapped in newspaper and put into sacks, and 
carefully put him in the back of the pickup truck. And then, uh, you know, we talked. There were a lot of quiet moments as we were both reflecting on this. And we were talking a lot about what the implications would be. Of course, then we got home. I was so I was so wired up, I couldn't go to bed. So uh, while uh, I stayed out in the garage and carefully unpacked each of these casts, and uh, we had a sink in the in my dad's garage. There was a sink, so I was carefully washing the the mud away and laying them out to dry. And you know, just sitting there reflecting on this again, because I I cast seven in total, and they showed quite. You know, we selected examples that showed the variation in appearance of the footprints depending on what was going on. So on the flat, they were a little little more shallow on on the real wet mud. Uh, the wet, silty um, substrate. Toes were extended. There, like I said, there were examples where the toes were curled in, very sharply flexed. There were examples of half tracks where it was running. It was running up on the front half of the foot, but not on the ball of the foot, but with the foot flexed at the transverse tarsal joint, the mid-tarsal break. And so it wasn't until the next morning that you know I bring my dad out and show him and. And because we've always had a little, a little connection on the subject since he, since he was with me there uh, in Spokane at the showing of that film, I've, and I've asked him, you know, since what he thought. And he goes, "Well, he says, uh, how? What else could I think? I mean, there it was, right in front of your eyes, walking yeah. across the screen. I mean, he he was quite impressed with it, uh, you know, just from his layman's point of view. Yeah, my wife at the time, you know, she she was always supportive. She, you know." didn't have the same level of enthusiasm that I had. But of course, all my kids have since been very intrigued by it. So they were very uh, interested in it uh, at that point. But yeah, it's a, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that kind of trickle of, uh, I mean, I've retold this story so many times, you know, it's in the, in the introductory chapter or introduction to my book, um, because it really was sort of the, the pivotal point. And, you know, convince me all the more that the footprints, I mean, that's the, the uh, testament that, that to there being a physical entity. Something's leaving these tracks. And we should be able to identify fake from, from real footprints or misidentified footprints. And, and that we have examples. Fortunately, fakery is, is, very, uh, is pretty uncommon. There are a few glaring examples, okay. uh, but they're usually also, until recently, very glaringly transparent. But but some people have tried very hard to make something much more believable. I guess they've got uh, you know nothing better to do. But yeah. uh, I always wonder what the, the mind of the hoaxer. But but much more frequently are people who read too much into potential sign, either oh. misunderstand. Or just every pothole that has, you know, that has the general shape or a little animal bounding in the snow leaves a series of imprints that melt out or get snowed over. Yeah. Looks like an alternating trackway. That so is, misidentification. That's a really good point. Because, for instance, if you believe in ghosts or whatever, I don't know, um, or if you think your house is haunted, every crick and cranny, see, oh, it must be, <laughs> you know oh, what yeah. I mean? That must be the ghost. That's a good yeah. point that you actually came across. Because I feel like if you're going out in the forest and you were looking for Sasquatch, I could imagine anything could be like, oh, wow, a Squatch was here, you know? Oh, sure. Well, and there are. And there, un unfortunately... There are lots of people, and uh, you know, not for any ill intent, but they're just overly enthusiastic, and so they're, you know, I, you know, I would, would call them the weekend warrior that have 
experiences on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, but when you press them for what constitutes those experiences, it's a bump in the night. It's an un, uh, supposedly unusual tree structure or a break or something that they're attributing to Sasquatch. But yeah, I've, I deal with people who, for whom every overturned stone, every rock on a stump, every nibbled on tree is sign of, of Bigfoot activity. And uh, I try to emphasize to these people, one of the questions that's commonly asked is, how many of them do you think there are? And, of course, there's questions about viable populations, about resources. I'm convinced that the number is, is much lower than a lot of people, even people in, uh, who have given it some thought, um, uh, have arrived at. I, in the entire North America, I would put the number probably in the range of two to 3,000. In the Pacific Northwest, just a couple of thousand. I mean, and that, by that I mean Alaska, Western, you know, everything west of the Mississippi, basically, Pacific and Intermountain West. Um, they're just very rare. And I won't, I won't bore you with a, uh, the, all the steps that I would go through to estimate or to infer a population, but just in our state of Idaho, you know, if you look at the landforms, if you look at the, where there's sufficient rainfall to produce enough understory. Well, a simple rule of thumb is where are the black bear? Black bear is a large omnivore and need similar resources, not necessarily the exact same resources. Cause I think they're bears and, a giant ape, they're able to process and digest, utilize resources differently, differentially, so that there is that kind of niche partition in, in the omnivore niche. But but look where in the state of Idaho bear are. Now, I would place the Sasquatch numbers in Idaho in the range of about 200, 250. There's 25,000 black bear. So there's 100 black bear for every one potential Sasquatch. Now, how much bear sign do you see on a regular basis, you know, when you go out on a, on a weekend hike? So these people who go out, you know, and claim they're, they're bumping into Sasquatch every single weekend, I sometimes say to someone like that, wow, that's amazing. Hey, this weekend, would you bring me back a picture of a black bear? Or even just <laughs> a picture of a buck. Bring me a five-point buck. You know, there's probably a thousand deer for every Sasquatch. That... And and then it starts to sink in what I'm pointing to or getting at, you know. Yeah. What odds? What are the odds that you that you, on a given weekend, just bump into this extremely rare and intelligent and elusive animal? That you that that I'm so happy you said that because I grew up in Roby Creek, Idaho. So Roby Creek, my childhood. So I was in the forest. Bears were there. I've never seen a wild bear. That's yeah. a really good point. Like, there's there we have a lot of bears here. I mean, unless you're actively, no, that I, that's such a point. I mean, a lot of people don't see them. I mean, you'll have your problem once occasionally, but you're right. Sure, and people do see them, and we do have they bones do. In, in the museum, and that's and sure, you know, and then that so that's oftentimes that's turned back around on us. But but my point is, uh, these these creatures are, are so rare. They're uh, long-lived, so the, the turnover rate is much lower than even for a bear. I mean, these creatures, as, as large-bodied primates, or excuse me, large-bodied apes or hominins, probably have a life expectancy in the wild of anywhere from 40 to 50, maybe 60 years, uh, probably un under 50 years. But a black bear is just you know 20 to 25 years, usually. And so twice the turnover rate, that's twice as many bodies you know but but times a hundred 
for the number of black bear, the ratio of black bear to Sasquatch. And then, and then you start thinking about it, large, you know, large predatory animals do not, uh, or when they die, they die natural deaths usually, unless they're hit by a car or shot by a hunter. And so they secrete off somewhere and uh, they die and their bodies are scattered by decomposers. And, and in, in dense coniferous forests, the soils are very acidic. In Idaho, they're, they're actually volcanic, you know, uh, the batholiths, so they're, that adds to the acidity of the soil. Bones just don't survive very long. So we, yeah, yeah, because I was going to say, a skeptic would say, well, then why have we never found a dead specimen? And I'm sure you've heard that a million times, and I know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it's a vexing, uh, persistent question and problem. If someone walked in one day with a, a jaw of a Bigfoot, you know, story, and well, that, that part, the discovery is, is made. And we wouldn't be having probably this conversation, at least not in the same way. I don't think even at that point, it's suddenly going to be easy to come to understand what these creatures are. Studying them in the wild is still going to be as challenging as it was before, but there will be more people, more academics interested, certainly, and more, more uh, grant money may be available to finance uh, sustained ongoing field uh, exploration and research. I tend to run into what's more vexing is people who throw up those kinds of questions, but are completely unwilling to consider the footprint evidence, the hair. It's like I had a department chairman, a past chairman, who said to me, uh, he said, well, they're just stories, Jeff. Well, just stories that leave footprints, that shed hair, that void scat, that <laughs> vocalize, that are witnessed by credible witnesses under sometimes very good conditions, you know, that feature prominently in the Native American traditions and contemporary reports, you know, of these people, these indigenous populations that have been here much longer than we have. Um, and so uh, they're not, it's not just stories. <laughs> if it were just stories, then I wouldn't be justified as a physical anthropologist pursuing this question. It would be the realm of cultural anthropology, you know, or sociology, psychology, you know, those, those kinds of disciplines. But the fact that we have trace and physical evidence, you know, we have footprints that are consistent and biomechanically appropriate and sound for the type of creature described in the habitat and moving the way it's described to, uh, to move. We have hair that defies attribution to common forms of wildlife or domestic animals. But that is primate hair, not fur. Oh, okay, it is primate you know? hair. Okay. It's yeah, it's primate hair. You know, all the other animals, the potential hair bearing animals out there typically have fur with guard hairs and under fur. Yeah, yeah. And and so when I get to see a sample where there's differentiation into those two types, you know, it's immediately ruled out. But when we get hair that essentially hardly can be differentiated from your own head hair or body hair. Uh, we have sort of a modified type of god guard hair, and then our we don't have under fur, and then our, of course our head hair is very modified, but um, and differentiated. But they look like human hair, except they've never had a haircut. <laughs> and there are other aspects: consistent absence of a cellular medulla, other aspects about the follicle that seem to be a little bit different. But uh, we got to get DNA. That's one of the big pushes. Is and one of the things I'm very excited about, just to maybe take us in a different vein, is is the potential now of environmental DNA. You know, we've gotten all kinds of publicity. For example, uh, Neil Gimmel uh, from New Zealand 
has led a study, and we're still waiting for the final results, but they've analyzed water samples from Loch Ness oh. to determine if there's some unexpected species uh-huh. amongst this sample taken there. And so I've, I've raised questions about our past approaches and apparent shortfalls in attempting to get DNA from, from samples, whether we're maybe getting what I would call false negatives, that is, um, DNA from hair samples that's identified as human, but only on the basis of, of looking maybe at one mitochondrial gene. You know, and I've talked to a number of geneticists who do this kind of thing. They say, oh, no, you need at least the entire mitochondrial genome and a half dozen or a dozen nuclear genes to boot in order to confidently differentiate such closely, potentially closely affiliated species. And so um, I've gotten Dr. Gimmel's interest. And uh, so our, our big push this year is going to be to undertake some eDNA analyses of of uh, some soil samples taken from potential nest sites, for example. Nest sites? Yeah, because that was the thing. You know, the question is, if, if you're going to take a soil sample, where do you take it? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> a great question. Is, is, is this rare? Well, if you've got a nest that looks like a gorilla nest mm-hmm. in the Olympic rainforest of Washington, um, it's, uh, it's not like a bear nest where they just scrape detritus and stuff into a pile and sleep on top of it for insulation. Mm-hmm. This thing was constructed. It, was, it has a lot. These, there were several of them actually in a cluster, um, had a, sort of an undercarriage of branches, you know, broomsticks dimension and inch, inch diameter branches with, with duff and litter piled on top, uh, heaped on top. And then they had meticulously snapped off all of the upper six inches, the six-inch sprigs on these evergreen huckleberries at a height, which, which grow up to a height of about eight feet. They'd reached up in about six and a half, seven feet, had snapped these off, and then not just piled them, but had stuck them in and woven them into a nest um, like a bird, like a big, giant bird nest. Oh, wow. It's just really stunning. As far as background for these nests, a timber cruiser uh, was was marking out a section for harvest. This was behind locked gates, um, literally a mile and a half, two miles from the nearest road. And he stumbled on these nests, which, like I said, the only other potential candidate would be a bear making such a thing. And yet was unlike any bear nest he'd ever seen, unlike any that I've ever seen. And, um, in fact, they brought one of the, uh, well, he, he identified a couple of investigators there in the region, some Bigfoot investigators, and uh, the Olympic Project is their group. And the, uh, they came down, as he thought, his, the thought occurred to him, I wonder if this is Bigfoot or Sasquatch. And they examined it, were impressed. They arranged and had a couple of bear biologists visit the site. Okay. Said, no, these aren't, this isn't bear. I mean, Something with hands snapped those branches off. They're not chewed off or anything. And the, the interweaving, you know, it would require manipulation, dexterity. There were about five or six nests and one small nest up a couple feet off the ground, sort of in the crook of a bush. When I first saw that, I couldn't help but think, that looks like, that looks like a bassinet. 
Huh. And so, because my mind was already wondering why in the world, because we don't, there, there have been such nests on rare occasion attributed to Sasquatch in the past. There have often been questions of whether they were misidentified bear beds, as they sometimes call them. Um, but why would there be these uh, at this site at this time? And, uh, and then, but, but not, why aren't we finding them on a regular basis? I mean, Obviously, they're not building nests to sleep in every night. Otherwise, there would be all over the place. So what was the occasion? And then when I saw that little nest, I wondered maybe this was a birthing event. You know, birthings for a large ape are spaced considerably. Orangutans may give birth only, you know, four or five times in their lifetime. And there's anywhere from four to six years between births. So they're not happening all the time. And again, if they're very rare and they're spaced out, maybe some of these have come together for this, this you know, blessed event. <laughs> and uh, all the aunties were, were uh, midwifing. And the, oh, my the, God. But who knows? I mean, I'm just, just oh. imagining what. But, but it's, it's a conceivable scenario. And the location was, was really quite amazing because it's right on the edge of a rather precipitous drop-off, about 300-foot very steep incline down to the, the the little stream below, which was rich with, uh, at that time of year, was rich with steelhead and salmon coming upstream. And then this huge hedgerow of evergreen huckleberries that would, at that time of year, would have been heavy laden with fruits. So there was a lot of resources immediately available and uh, very protected, not much, well, virtually no human traffic with the exception of this timber cruiser since it was private uh, land with locked gates um, you know just once in a blue moon there would be a hunter back in there with permission so it's fascinating anyway when i was discussing with colleagues the possible applications of edna you know and one of them quipped so said well but the the devil's in the details and the detail is where do you take the sample yeah. well i had just come from visiting this site and i go I know exactly where we should sample. <laughs> and so we did that. We, we took some core samples, just literally took, you know, a sterile, a sterile tube and, you know, cored the central detritus of the, of the nest. And the thing that was so exciting is in the past when we tried to do DNA analysis of hair, for example, one of the consistent characteristics I mentioned was the lack of a cellular medulla that central core of the hair shaft, that dark band you see under the microscope, that's where the dead accumulated cells are. The cortex is all keratin, mm -hmm. just extracellular protein, as, as is the cuticle. And so in the absence of that medulla, there's precious little DNA material uh, in that hair sh uh, shaft. And most hairs that are shed, they, they're, they're lost because the... Uh, follicle periodically goes through a period of quiescence and it shrinks up and the cells die off and the hair just slips out of the follicle mm -hmm. and um, the root out of the follicle. And uh, so more often than not, when we have very promising looking hair based on morphology tested for DNA, there is no DNA or if DNA is detected, it's identified as human. And attributed either to the handling of the hair sample by the witnesses or a misidentified human hair that's been shed and collected. 
Well, the third possibility is, as I mentioned, this false negative. Maybe it's not a human at all, but they've looked at such a small little teeny piece of DNA. It's like looking at the ball game through the pinhole camp or the, the knot hole in the fence. They have, don't have enough information to make the distinction between human and a very closely related species. Maybe even, like I said, an early hominin that mm. would be much more closely related to us than a chimpanzee, which has a very high percentage, depending on which number you settle on. 96 to 98 percent or 99 percent identity. Sasquatch may be 99.5 or 99.7 percent identical to humans. Why do you think they have stayed hidden for all these years? I mean, first of all, what was the first <clears throat> sighting, like the first account of, I mean, does it date back to the Native Americans? Because some people on Facebook were saying that. I mean, when was the first record of a Sasquatch? Well, as you as you suggest, the Native American traditions and stories and, and uh, uh, tr traditional knowledge, I think is the best way to label that, includes depictions of the wild man of the woods or the wild woman of the woods that go back to their earliest oral traditions. Um, in their in their estimation, they've always been here. In fact, in some, the uh, um, Kathy Strain is an archaeologist for the Forest Service who's very interested in the subject, written a fantastic book. An, uh, an um, uh, accumulation, an anthology of, of Native American traditional stories about giants, cannibals, and ogres. And uh, the Yokuts, she's drawn attention to a particular interesting pictograph created by the Yokuts in California, which attribute their origin story to the hairy man. Hmm. It was the hairy man that fashioned humans in his image, essentially. With to stand upright in contrast to all the other forest creatures, like he does. But when, but when the humans saw this gigantic hair-covered uh, figure entity, they were afraid and ran away. And so the depiction of the Perry man shows tears running down his cheeks, and he he vows only to stalk the forests at night so that he won't frighten these little people that he's created. And um, you know, it, it explains not only supposedly our origin relationships, but it explains some of the behavior attributed to Sasquatch. So those go way back. You know, the first real public uh, um, announcement, I guess, if you will, in the popular press was 1958, at least in the United States. 1958, mm -hmm. when uh, Jerry Crew came into town with a plaster cast of a footprint that uh, was photographed and. AP Wire Services picked it up and ran with it, and Bigfoot was born in 1958. The term Bigfoot, I should say. Okay. But the, but the point being, though, that these stories amongst the loggers and foresters and prospectors went back decades. I mean, you know, the, the legend of Mount St. Helens and the, the miners that uh, were apparently accosted by these mountain devils, these, these giant apes, that goes back to the 1920s, so... Uh, and, of course, there's other stories. If you go back into the papers of the eastern states, there's all kinds of wild man stories from back there. And what exactly the relationship is, if those are actually Sasquatch encounters. Or, I mean, they didn't have the word Sasquatch or Bigfoot back in the Midwestern states in the late 1800s. But they did know about wild men because of the longstanding traditions in Europe from the 11th to the 12th, 13th century, where wild men were on heraldic crests and 
you know, the wild men carved into the cathedrals and so forth. And, Really, I actually have some. I have some family ancestry I would like to share with you. Are you ready for yeah. this? That I just found out yesterday. Apparently, my uncle Craig messaged me yesterday. Apparently, my grandpa, Grandpa Maxie, did a Sasquatch investigation in Missouri, where my family's from, in the 1970s. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah. So apparently, I have roots in this, uh, <laughs> in this Sasquatch, but. I, so he mentioned something, Craig mentioned something, and I've heard this numerous times from people who, who have, um, numerous times, people who have seen Sasquatch. He explained that he had an encounter, and a lot of people say they have a smell to them. Can yeah. you, okay, can you go well, into that? What, oh, sure. Yeah. What, what are the characteristics yeah. of a Sasquatch sighting? Or, yeah, they, the scent is often described as kind of a locker room, a very musky, uh, you know, a dirty gym clothes, dirty gym socks. Um uh, putrid, maybe rancid meat kind of a smell. Um, in fact, down in Florida, that that's that smell is what gave uh, the local rendition of Bigfoot its name, the skunk ape. But if you look at the statistics, I mean, in terms of um, John Green, I mentioned earlier at the beginning, uh, he went through meticulously by hand uh, initially and later with some computer algorithms and tallied up some aspects of reports and, and of encounters. And he found that uh, that a mention of a noticeable smell only occurred in about 10% of the reported encounters. Oh. So that raises the question, do they always smell like that or not? So like in my book, I talk about how um, great apes, as do humans, have these well-developed apocrine sweat glands, not the watery evaporative sweat like when you're out uh, working out in the gym, but the sweat you get when you're going up to talk to the boss or stand in front of the audience at the podium, um, which gives a much greater odor. Um, I point out when when um, Diane uh, Fossey, who studied the gorillas, described her first bluff charge, she said this silverback came barreling down towards her. She adopted a very submissive posture, just ready to take her, her knocks there, and it stopped, she said, just feet short of her. But she said the overpowering odor that it emitted nearly knocked her over. And so under stress uh, and agitation, these apes also can exude this very pungent, musky smell and I think that's what people are describing. Uh, when a Sasquatch is agitated, it's frightened, or it's threatening, um, then it probably exudes that odor on those occasions. But on other times, you know, if you've ever been around great apes, I've had, I've had the privilege of being up close. I mean, they have that animal smell, you know, like any, they, they don't uh, bathe daily and, <laughs> yeah. you know, cutter and spray and on uh, perfumes and colognes and whatnot. So they've got that smell, but it's not an off-putting smell. But if they really get, uh, you know, yeah, just uh, human body odor. I mean, uh, human body odor we find very distasteful. And that's why we have such uh, social norms of hygiene and bathing mm-hmm. occasionally and so forth. So what do you think their habits are? So I'm a, I didn't realize this. I guess I never even thought of this. So you, I mean, do you think they're more of a nocturnal creature, solitary, I'm assuming? Can, you, can we go into that really quick? Almost all the footprint finds, most of the encounters are of solitary individuals, single individuals, the credible ones. 
um, it's tempting to kind of uh, it, to analogize to the orangutan, which of the great apes is also semi-solitary and has what we call a noyu. Uh, a male defends not a harem of females, but he defends a territory that includes the territories of other females, of females, with their dependent offspring. And he defends that from interloping, you know, upstart males. Mm -hmm. And the females, when they're ready, when they're receptive, they seek out the male and his company and attentions, not the other way around, um, usually. I mean, it's the it's the uh, young adult males that are uh, with uh, hormones raging that, that are responsible for accosting females when they're, uh, when they are not receptive otherwise. So anyway, um, nocturnality, diurnality, again, going back to John Green and his statistics, he noted that half of the reports in his files were at night, but half were in the daytime. And so he argued that given the limited field of vision of humans at night and the limited scope of our activities at night to have that many encounters would suggest that they're much more active at night than they are in the daytime, but not exclusively. So, you know, a lot of people think that the only time you can do legitimate Bigfoot research to actually have an encounter is at night. And yet many of the sightings are in broad daylight. Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin bumped into Patty on Wolf Creek in 1967 in in the early afternoon in broad daylight. Yeah, so. and I have to actually talk to you about that. And and for those of you wondering, if you're not a hardcore Bigfoot or Sasquatch enthusiast, we're referring to the film, the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin uh, Bigfoot film shot in Northern California. That's, I mean, it came out years ago. It was a hoax, and then some people say it wasn't. What are your thoughts on that, that film? Well, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced that... Uh, I'm as convinced as I can be short of having stood there on the bar sandbar myself, that uh -huh. that's the real deal. I mean, based on, if I had nothing but the footprints, the footprint record from that site, I would be convinced that it was authentic. But add to that of the remarkable anatomy and the, uh, and the locomotion. I mean, I can see the signs of animation, the footprints, and interpret it, infer it from the footprints, but I don't have to stop there because I can watch the actual kinematics of the bipedalism of that creature on the film, and they agree. I mean, its movement agrees with what the footprint record uh, uh, documents, but all the other anatomy, the aspects uh, are just are so uh, persuasive that uh, there's just no way. I mean, all you have to do is go back to 1967 and, and see what was available to Patterson at the time. You know, I, I had to laugh on a, on a documentary. They they showed, the producer showed the film to a costume designer in Hollywood. Uh -huh. And he's watching it. And he says, oh, well, it's obviously a man in a fursuit. And here's how we do it. And then the camera pans over. And here's an actor donning a costume. And he's pulling on this spandex undergarment mm -hmm. with a sewn-in sculpted foam rubber musculature. And then he pulls on this four-way stretch for two-piece um, outfit with, well, two-piece, two body pieces, separate hands and gloves, and, of course, the, the masks. But it, the whole thing has, you know, six to eight-inch fur to cover up all the joints at the mm -hmm. waist, wrists, and uh, which Patty didn't have. She had very short hair and sparse hair. Well, wait a minute. Let's back up. 
1967, they didn't have spandex. Foam rubber was just be, being experimented with in Hollywood. John Chambers was was making costumes that ver- at that very time for the first Planet of the Apes movie. Hmm. And he got a, an Oscar or a nomination for an Oscar, I can't remember which now, for his uh, pioneering techniques of creating these injected foam rubber appliances that they used for the mouth and the eyebrows and the ears of the actors in the Planet of the Apes movie. Um, they didn't have four-way stretch fur. They had fur cloth, which is what they used on, again, on uh, Planet of the Apes. If you remember in one of the later movies, the, the sauna scene mm-hmm. when apes are in there with just the towel, and they look like big, hairy Pillsbury Doughboys. I mean, they, there's no anatomy. It's just... <laughs> and that's, you know, through much of the rest of the movie, they're wearing high-necked leather tunics that come clear down to the wrist and, and all the way down to their ankles. Um, there wasn't the material, let alone the wherewithal, let alone the understanding of anatomy and anthropology. So 2017 was the 50th anniversary. Looking back 50 years with 50 years hindsight, and uh, there are so many things about that film that anticipate what we now know in anthropology. For example, just to illustrate, it's a great one. John Napier, who was actually a rather sympathetic uh, scientist towards the question, and actually wrote an excellent book for the time, excellent book for the time. Uh, <clears throat> he was, and he was a renowned uh, primatologist and one of the fathers of uh, modern primate locomotion studies. Anyway, his book came out in uh, in the early seventies, so he had a few years to consider some of the evidence that accumulated since the Patterson-Gimlin film. He 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 could not accept that the Patterson Gimlin film was was authentic, but he couldn't quite put his finger on any one thing. And then he offered a possible uh, um, contradiction. He said, "From the waist up, it looks essentially like an ape, but from the waist down, it looks typically human." It's inconceivable, he said, for such a hybrid or such a mosaic or hybrid. I think was the word he used. Such a hybrid of structure to exist in nature. One or the other half has to be fake, or therefore the entire thing is fake. Well, interestingly, just a few years after his book was published, um, the discovery of Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, with a much more extensive skeleton of these early Australopithecines. And how did they describe it in the press? Isn't this interesting? From the waist up, she looks like a chimpanzee. But from the waist down, she looks like a short-legged human. Hmm. Isn't it curious how evolution of hominins has progressed in this mosaic fashion with unexpected combinations of traits? Hmm. Well, now, wait a minute. That was the very basis for rejecting the Patterson-Gimlin film just five years earlier. I sometimes wonder what would have happened if if, uh, Napier hadn't published his book for another decade. What would he have thought about the Patterson-Gimlin film then? You know, no one really followed up with that. And there's example after example looking at the adaptations of the of the facial skeleton and proportion that flat face and deep jaws and and evidence of, of you know huge chewing muscles <clears throat> the lack of projecting canines in the absence of the use of food yeah and on and on the foot you know the non-divergent big toe combined with the flexible instep which uh colleagues of mine have argued and argued about until now we know that our early hominin ancestors walked on a flat, flexible foot with a non-divergent big toe, just like I've been arguing for 
for them as well as for Sasquatch for decades. And now it's finally getting some traction. I remember in the press a few years ago, someone from the film came out and said, oh, it was an ape costume. Like, I don't know, someone from the family. Can you go into that? Sure. I mean, the, the main story came from a, a fellow named Bob Hieronymus, who was had some interactions with Roger Patterson back then. Uh, and he claimed to be the man in the fursuit. Um, and if you want the whole story, it's uh, Greg Long has a book, uh, which is a very revealing book in the remarkable inconsistencies in the in the stories and allegations. He said, she said, uh, Hieronymus described a, a costume, and yet that costume was supposed to have been supplied by a man named Philip Morris, a costume maker from back east, who said he looked at the film and recognized that was one of his costumes. <laughs> he must not have been wearing his glasses at the time because uh, anybody can look at it. And it's not, not nothing like it. But his, the description of his costume, the features of his costume, were totally different from what Bob Hieronymus claims. Hieronymus claims it was a green horse hide that uh, was created uh, to make the appearance and, and that it was, you know, it was so stiff he needed help to get his arms through uh, and then he had a head that was built up around a football helmet. Bob Hieronymus has one glass eye. So he has just one, one good eye. And he said that the opening for the eye was about two inches away from his eye. All right, now you think. Go go take a paper, uh, toilet paper roll, empty roll, and stick it up to your eye. Close the other eye. And then go walk across a similar kind of sandbar strewn with irregular surface and and uh, Deadwood from the flood that had come through. And you watch Patty, not once does she look down at the ground at her feet. She's walking like a normal, um, uh, very uh, natural, fluid, uh, fluidly moving animal that's quite at home in that environment with that high stepping gait to allow her to negotiate the irregular surface and so forth, especially once she gets off that unobstructed sandbar, relatively unobstructed sandbar, up into the woods. I mean, there, there's so many holes to, that, that are gaping. You don't even have to actively punch them. They're already there. Do you, so, no, all, all of those claims and allegations just fall absolutely flat. Do you uh, do you think the other Sasquatches looked at Patty and said, Damn it, Patty! <laughs> We've done it for so many years, and you just had to go out and walk on that sandbar. Oh, uh, yeah, I wonder that sometimes. It, it was just, it was such a fluky set of circumstances, and yet, uh, and, and, and it did, it set the bar so high for the, the, the quality of, of imagery that we expect. And, you know, in, in this day and age of cell phones, of iPhones, people ask, well, why don't you have more pictures? Well, actually, there are a lot. They're not great because most people are, are, are not, uh, are not uh, good photographers first, and they don't expect the situation. It's like I said, um, you know, these people who go out intending to run into Bigfoot, they're not experiencing anything but their, mostly their own imagination. Uh, and, and I don't mean to make a blanket statement on that. Maybe that's not fair. But, um, I mean, take most people who are, are probably not too different from me. My cell phone is in my pocket, my iPhone. I've actually only had an iPhone for a short time. And still, getting my iPhone out and pushing the proper sequence of buttons and not having my finger get in the way of the lens and snapping off a picture. I mean, most of, most encounters that are serendipitous are very brief, mm -hmm. just a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. And so um, it doesn't surprise me that there aren't very many 
good pictures out there. There's some titillating ones, a few here and there, besides the Patterson-Gilman film. In my book, I talk about uh, the Freeman footage, which is I still think is a pretty darn good one, um, and the uh, Memorial Day footage, which uh, was covered in the documentary and hence was covered again. But I did have the opportunity to go to the site of that one and spend time with the witnesses. It's a very different experience when you can, you know, it's one thing to sit in your office or in your, your armchair and, and scrutinize and, and do the kind of uh, analysis of the actual video. But when, in addition to that, you have the chance to go to the site and walk the trail, explore the surroundings and the context, talk to the witnesses, sit and speak with them. You know, I had sat and had, had lunch with the Pates on that occasion. And, and, you know, conversation goes here and there, and it isn't focused just about their experience. And you get to know them, their motivations, their background, their uh, personality and demeanor. Uh, I think that was a very interesting piece of footage as well. Hmm. Man. Okay. So I know you have to go soon. Can we answer a few Facebook questions? Cause I promised oh, sure. my followers. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So our first one, and a lot of people asked about bones. I think you kind of covered the bones. We had uh, Donald asked why uh, or why have bones never been found? Is that just because you said the acidity in the soil? Yes, the the acidity, the, the environment, the the abiotic and the biotic. There are porcupines, rodents, squirrels, you name it, that that chew up bone very, very, very quickly in the wild. Uh, I mean, you think about the number of deer. Uh, a friend of mine was from uh, Great Lakes area from, I think it was from Minnesota's, but uh, he, he talked to their DNR, their division of natural resources. And, you know, there's an estimate of 10,000 deer that die of winter kill. Where are those bodies and bones? When you go out hiking, you're, we're not up to our ankles and deer carcasses there. You know, if you, if you stumble upon just a few vertebrae or, or partial skull or something of a, of a deer on a hike, that's, you know, pretty typical but not common even. Again, you take the into the equation. A thousand deer for every one Sasquatch out there. And deer dying every, you know, 15, 12, 15 years. I'm not sure what the life expectancy. I haven't really looked at that. It's a good question. Good so question. all those things, I think, you know, the, and the big thing that, again, the big contrast between deer and a Sasquatch, top predator, prey, um, top predators, you rarely find you know, ask outdoorsmen, how many lynx, how many wolverine skeletons or skulls have you found? I mean, talk about numbers of rare animals here in Idaho. Well, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, there's only about 300 wolverines. You know, mm -hmm. it's just the, the numbers are really, really low. If even that, that doesn't even ring right. It's lower than that. But I, I'll top my head. Yeah. So... Yeah. And wait, you said something. Wait, okay. And an, an, another another person, uh, Andy asked, do you think that Sasquatch is a herbivore or a carnivore? Do you think they're more of an omnivore? Like, what do you think the Om diet is? Omnivore. I think I think omnivore because they exhibit the morphology of, of a more omnivorous kind of a diet. Animals that have the depth of jaw that they have typically have big teeth with more bunidont, more rounded cusps. Um, the sightings, those uh, encounters where the observer has noted the presence or absence of canines almost invariably have no projecting canine teeth. 
the canines are short and probably wear end to end, which what that means is they're capable of, of this second phase of the chewing cycle, this grinding phase. Whereas when you have gaping canines, you have more or less just an open and close. The first mm-hmm. phase dominates. And, uh, you know, if you look at gorillas, for example, they have very high crested molars where they slice up that vegetation. Um, I don't think these teeth would, would, although I've not peered into a Sasquatch mouth, the, the correlation of the kind of teeth that I'm suggesting with the dimensions and proportions and flat face with close canine loading um, emphasized, th- those correlations are, are really quite good. And so uh, the animals that have all those external proportions, like Gigantopithecus, like Paranthropus, especially Paranthropus great mollusks, we have so much more of its craniofacial anatomy, um, they, uh, they're omnivorous in their, in their diet as well. Um, but we have, and then, but I was going to say also then eyewitness accounts. We have eyewitnesses talking about everything from roots and berries, right on up to them taking deer and elk. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've never heard of the deer and elk. I always thought they were a peaceful gorilla type creature eating the berries and. Well, more like a more like a chimpanzee. Okay, which are so, yeah. You know the hunting behaviors of chimpanzee mm. uh, with uh, monkeys with. Uh, with uh, impala, uh, well, baboons and impala, mm-hmm. but but even chimps sometimes occasionally come upon, and and human babies. And that was another interesting aspect too, is that, you know, the Native Americans have these stories which many just dismiss as boogeyman stories of the Zonaqua that that snatches naughty children, and takes them home to eat them, and they usually get away, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, a just so story? Well, maybe not, because uh, there are uh, re- uh, documented uh, cases where chimpanzees have snatched human children and eaten them. In fact, there was a rash during a very protracted drought in Uganda over one particular year, about a seven-month stretch. There were 12 cases of infants or toddler, human infants and toddlers, snatched by chimpanzees and in some cases dispatched and partially consumed before they could be retrieved. So, again, I mean, not to dwell on the macabre, but it's just amazing that here, here something that we might be quick to just dismiss as a just-so story may actually have basis, certainly has precedent, in the natural history and behavior of other known great apes. So what an interesting connection or correlation there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, Lori wants to know if the sightings of them may simply be adolescents that have not mastered the art of camouflage that the adults have. Could you please ask Jeff, please, 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 Lori. Well, well, that's certainly, that's a possibility. I mean, one, one of the, um, offered explanations for for sightings of Sasquatch in kind of out of the way uh, place, I mean, uh, odd places, like, um, you know, out in the sagebrush steppe of Idaho or something. Um, If this model of their social structure is correct, then when the young dependent uh, juveniles, especially the males, come into their own, they're going to be, their presence won't be tolerated by the resident dominant male. And they'll be driven out. And so they have to strike out to find their own territory or to bide their time until they can 
you know, can bulk up enough that they can challenge a dominant male and usurp his territory. So um, uh, dispersing what Grover called rogue males might explain some of those. I mean, I think we can, you know, we can kind of differentiate. If the eyewitnesses uh, encounter is, is sufficient that they can estimate size, we can differentiate between, you know, what might be juveniles versus what might be adults. But uh, it may be that less experienced juveniles are more uh, prone to risk-taking and approaching human habitations to investigate or to pilfer or to whatever. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that might account for more of the, uh, the in-close encounters, whereas the males, the, the dominant males that have the prime territories, which are away and removed, or the females that have offspring that don't dare take those risks because they don't want to expose their offspring to the potential risks of uh, human contact. Hmm. Okay. Maybe less, less than seen. Okay. I mean, Patty, you know, take Patty's example. That was used to be, until that road was put in, was a very remote area. That part of Northern California, I mean, you might as well have been on the dark side of the moon until roads began to go in and the, and the logging really started taking hold in there. I mean, even now, there are vast stretches there that, uh, yeah, there are a few roads, paved roads, but it still well, doesn't take you very long to get completely away from civilization and out of touch with things. So, um, you know, she was in an out-of-the-way spot when she was a kid. Thank you. A lot of people on Facebook have asked, what are your thoughts about the Bigfoot shows? And I know that you were on Finding Bigfoot. <laughs> so what are your yeah. thoughts? They're in like their 12th season. They've never seen a Bigfoot. It's like ratings gold for Animal Planet. <laughs> no, that's true. It really was. It was Animal, Animal Planet's uh, bread and butter there. And, uh, and, they, and that's why one of the reasons they did not diverge from their rather stilted formula um, it's, if it is done, it, it's not, I mean, there may be reruns now, but it's done. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see there's kind of a scramble going on as to who's going to fill that niche <laughs> with what. And, uh, it's always been a double-edged sword in a way, and it's gotten better with time. Initially, it was a real, always kind of a risky business because obviously I have no creative control nor any editorial control. And so it's very easy for my statements to be taken out of context or for the show to take a completely different turn than what had initially been described when uh, we were exploring the possibility of my participation. And that, that's happened a couple of times. Um, but for all those potential pitfalls, there have been so many advantages. I mean, my, I got to go to, well, Monster Quest, let me say Monster Quest was head and shoulders above Finding Bigfoot, I think, as far as an educational and, and expository type of a documentary. Um, and it provided me a chance to go to some, some really great places, to, to, to go to China and examine footprints that were remarkable, uh, were absolutely compelling. Um, and to see other types of evidence firsthand, to visit with witnesses, to see locations firsthand. So I've been very grateful for the opportunity to participate. You just have to be careful about what you say. You realize you're never off the record, you know, or off camera. It's everything is always fair game and, and, and might be edited. You can't qualify a statement with a preface 
because that can easily be edited away. Uh, so you have to say things that are, are soundbite quality and succinct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't regret. Uh, I regret some circumstances, but I don't regret having participated. And I think that's what I wanted to add was it's just the opportunity. I mean, if they weren't talking to me, who would they be talking to? Mm-hmm. So it gives me an opportunity as that kind of lone voice <laughs> in mm-hmm. the scientific community, keeping that door ajar and um, and and keeping it relatively grounded in, in at least uh, one voice that's grounded and, and, and uh, sometimes a little less emotional and more rational than, than others might be. So I, I think that's... Uh, that has been a great opportunity as well. Great. Okay, one last Facebook question. Elizabeth wants to know, what was the most recent Sasquatch sighting? Yeah, that's a question I'm not prepared for. I, You know, honestly, I don't uh, keep my finger on that pulse so much unless there's really good corroborating evidence with it. I mean, footprints. I really want to see the footprints because it's to the point now where it's it's very – I mean, I've learned with even with footprints – I cannot accept a witness's uh, testimony on face. I have to see the footprints and evaluate them myself. With that realization, when it comes to eyewitness testimony, unless it's someone whose reputation, you know, is in, and and expertise set them apart, uh, I I I just can't accept a verbal you know, a, a verbal account of an encounter only carries so much weight by itself. You know, we're back to the, we're back to my department chairman. Well, after all, Jeff, they're just stories. So an account, an uncorroborated account is just a story. Unless there's, unless there's another layer or two that's provided by that person. You know, in other words, if a wildlife biologist is out on a biodiversity survey and reports having a, a visual encounter well, you know, that that carries a lot more weight than, you know, um, well, i, I got to be careful what I choose here. <laughs> Susie. Uh, you know, just Joe Blow. Just, yeah. just you know, a good uh, uh, a working man out uh, for a weekend drive or, or a, you know, uh, a hunter or someone who spends a lot of time and sees something that's not a bear. You know, he's hunting for bear and he sees something that's not a bear. Because uh, that's one of the most common quote lookalikes, is uh, the five-digit imprint of a bear hind paw or a bear standing upright. I like how you are skeptical. I mean, I really do. Like that's I, I like. I mean, as a scientist, you should be. I mean, yeah. that's what we. You know, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's got to be part of the of the formula. It's it's the ideological skeptics who are who doubt everything and who just pound that one key on the keyboard over and over. You know, if that key is part of a melody, it plays an important role. Skepticism and objectivity. But, uh, you know, the, the big advances, the big discoveries in science aren't necessarily made by the skeptics who sit at home poking holes in everything that comes by, <laughs> you know, trying to poke holes. or uh, It's... Uh, in some instances, in this field, there's a fine line between the ideological skeptics and the trolls that are out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Jeff, I yeah. know you have to go. I have one last question. This is my okay. question. Are you ready yeah. for it? I am. What would you do if you saw Sasquatch? Well, I'd try to keep as much composure and, and uh, observe as carefully. If I had the wherewithal to document it and then follow up with, uh, you know, trying to cut the sign, see if there's any footprints or, um, I mean, when you have a 800 pound gorilla going through the forest, they've got to leave some trace. And so if you hopefully have the wherewithal to document that, just document, document, document. It. You, okay. Would you be a little nervous? Like I would be terrified. Uh -oh. <laughs> I would be like, Oh yeah. my God. Like I would put my head down to show I'm not like, you know, trying to, you know, like what you do with the gorilla. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm Jeff. I, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, I guess it depends on the circumstances. I mean, with the, the meat, the, the flash uh, of a scenario that came to mind when you said that was, as so often is the case, you, you know, just a brief glimpse and then a fleeting backside as it disappears into the tree line. Um, you know, if you had the opportunity for that closer type of interaction. No, I think at this point, you know, I've, I've thought about that so much and intellectually. It's just like when I'm out in the woods whether I'm alone or, and I usually don't for safety purposes, because I, because we, we go traipsing off, off trail and off road quite some distance, but I've only done that once and uh, realized it was a great experience to do it solo, but it's not a very prudent <laughs> approach to field work. Um, but you, you, you have to intellectualize. I mean, there, that we all naturally have that instinct for self-preservation and, and that kind of of uh, self-serving fear that comes up. But uh, at one point, one of the first expeditions that I was on, where we were out in Northern California for over a month, you know, I quickly realized that I'm, I'm going to go crazy if I uh, let this get to me like this. Because, you know, there's... Uh, and, and why am I here? Well, I'm here to have just that encounter that I'm, I'm subliminally or subconsciously fearful of. So instead of being afraid that there's a Bigfoot behind every tree, I should hope that there's a Bigfoot <laughs> behind every tree. And I should look behind every tree. And and that, you know, when, when that uh, process, and it, and it didn't happen just like that. It wasn't like snap fingers. You still have to, you have to master yourself. Um, but it, it really changed my experience. And from then on, you know, I was always cautious. I'm more afraid of bumping into a black bear at night or, or parting the, the willows along a stream and seeing a sow bear with her cubs, oh, you know, yeah. its quarters. And for that reason, we, we carry bear spray and, uh, you know, pepper spray. And, and I uh, typically have at, at least pepper spray and perhaps also a sidearm. But it's for that purpose alone. And, uh, and yeah. Uh, and I know this sounds like a ridiculous question, but have you ever seen Sasquatch or is the only evidence the footprints? Have you ever seen Sasquatch? No, I, I did have an experience where, um, well, I've had, uh, as far as actually seen, I've, I've been up close, I think, uh, because of what was happening in camp and, and disturbance to our tents and so forth. But um, uh, just this past year, uh, uh, last uh, fall, or the fall before, so you know, time starts to fly. Anyway, I was up in Alberta, Canada, with a fellow named Todd Standing, who himself is a rather controversial figure. So we won't get into all that controversy at this point. But uh, at, at his invitation, was up there, as well as Dr. John Bindernagel, the late Dr. John Bindernagel. And uh, we had something approach camp one night, one wee, wee hours in the morning, about 1.30 in the morning. We'd stay up very late, 
hoping that our, our, you know, the sounds and activities around the campfire and smells of food, you know, throw a strip of bacon on the, on the coals and would lure things in. And something did. And we had heard vocalizations, heard brush popping. We heard massive brush popping. I mean, it sounded like a bull moose was making its way around our camp just outside of the fire line. One of the members of our team approached, talking to it, reassuring and trying to coax it, you know, in closer or whatever. And it was reacting by breaking branches. And at one point it broke, it sounded like it cracked a Louisville slugger across the tree trunk. And, and I'm watching through night vision. It affected her and her knees started to shake. And she backed away and came back into the firelight. I mean, she was quite gutsy, walking right out into the darkness. And uh, so you actually that, saw that you saw a figure. Well, at that point, I stood up because the smoke was blowing in my face with my night vision. We were camped up against a berm, and so my view of where the sounds were emanating was mm -hmm. slightly obscured. But from that dark, shadowy gully right down beyond the berm, something stepped out and walked across the road. And if you imagine Patty, but jet black in silhouette against the light gravel, the granite of that road, just kind of illuminated by the ambient starlight, it wasn't much light. So my night vision's good. It was a third generation night vision, but still because of the low light was rather speckly. And, and so I, you know, I was questioning myself what I saw, you know, and I kept pulling the lens away from my eye and, moving it back and forth to see if I could get a shadow to appear. I couldn't. It was, I mean, whatever it looked like, you know, heads low on the broad shoulders, the arms swinging, I could only see about it from about mid-thigh up, and it just very smoothly went up, up slope and into the trees on the opposite side. And they cut sign. I had to leave the next day before sunup, but they, Dr. Bendernagel and Todd cut sign and found impressions and broken vegetation, flagged it out where, where it looked like it had walked, and then Todd stood back where I had been standing, and John walked that tape. And when I saw the video, that was it. You know, at first I thought they were in the wrong place. I thought it was much closer, but it was actually over there. But it was a foot and a half taller than John from that vantage point. So it was about seven and a half feet tall, which kind of agrees. We were finding 13, 13 and a half inch footprints in the moss. And so it could have been, it could well have been this... Uh, this creature just checking us out that night and didn't like what we were doing, I guess, and was trying to intimidate us. You know, this could have been one of those juveniles that, <laughs> that uh, one of your callers, uh, or, uh, uh, yeah, I was suggesting a 13 inch oh. footprint. It may not have been a full adult male, but he was uh, blustering and trying to intimidate us with intimidate us with all of the, the branch breaking and so forth yeah jeff thank you so much i i've i've done a lot of these podcast interviews but i don't think i've ever been more i mean like i've heard a story where my hair's rising on my you know my <laughs> arms and i want to go out and look for bigfoot or sasquatch yeah. would you take okay. me oh sure you yeah. just hesitated <laughs> it's an exciting experience it puts a whole new dimension of being on uh you know to being in the woods and yeah, but you uh, you're much more observant, I think, when you're keyed into uh, any kind of signs or sound, and much more aware of your uh, environment that way. Perfect. And your book, Sasquatch: Legend Meets Science, is available online. Amazon people can go pick it up. That's correct. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.